All right. If you've got your Bibles, open to John chapter 10. So we're going to do the first half of the chapter, verses 1 to 21. Last week, we looked at the blind man and saw how Jesus healed him in John chapter 9. And it's a picture of our salvation. So we're blind, but because Jesus stops by and applies his healing to us, we have our spiritual sight restored. So that's a a very quick rundown of what happened last week. So this week, we're going to tackle the first half of chapter 9, and it's a continuation of that conversation or discussion. Um, There's no break. And here, Jesus reveals himself as the good shepherd and the door. So I am the good shepherd and I am the door. Father, I just uh, thank you for your grace this morning. Lord, we thank you for this fellowship. We thank you for your presence among us. And we just pray that your Holy Spirit will teach us and lead us into all truth. Amen. So I'm going to read the 21 verses. Then we're going to explain some stuff about sheepfolds. And then going to read the verses again. And then we'll get into verse by verse because it's not that long. So we can do that. Yeah, so you get the context of it, and then I'll explain some stuff about the sheepfolds, and then when you read it again, you might uh, understand a bit more. So, John chapter 10, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and leads them out. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Yet they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Jesus used this illustration, but they did not understand the things which he spoke to them. Then Jesus said to them again, Most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep, All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep, but a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and I am known by them. As the Father knows me, Even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring. And they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Therefore my Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it up again, or to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. 
Therefore there was a division among the Jews because of these sayings, and many of them said, He has a demon and is mad, why do you listen to him? Others said, These are not the words of one who has a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? So a little bit about sheepfolds. You know, back in the Middle East, or still today in the Middle East, they have um, sheep and they lead their sheep, not they don't drive them. But if they were in town, close to a city, they would have all the shepherds with their sheep, putting their sheep into like a central communal sheepfold and have big tall walls, seven or eight foot high, you know, maybe as tall as this roof. And there'll be a guy or a lady, whoever it might be, um, assigned to guard the entrance to that. And they call that the doorkeeper or the, the, the porter or whatever, the shepherd whose job it was to guard the door. And then in the morning, each shepherd would come to the fold, call his sheep by name, whether it was a song or a word or whatever it might be, and his sheep would come out and the others wouldn't. And so you'd call them and off they'd walk. And that's the picture in the first six verses when he calls out his own sheep by name. So there's a mixed multitude of sheep and he calls out his own sheep. And the second kind of sheepfold is what you'd find in the countryside. So each shepherd would go their own different ways to find feed for their sheep, for their little flock. And it's just a cave or some brush or some rocks that are put in a circle and the sheep would go inside and the shepherd would lay across the door and the sheep couldn't get out because the shepherd's laying across the door. And that's what I believe Jesus is talking about when he says, I am the door, in verses 7 to 9. It's that Jesus, the good shepherd, guarding his flock as he lays across the door. And the main point here is a contrast between the good shepherd, which is Jesus, and the false shepherds of Israel, the Jewish leaders, who are stopping people from entering the kingdom, or refusing to enter the kingdom, and stopping people from entering into the kingdom. So, as we go through it, I'm going to read it again. Think of the thieves and robbers as being the religious leaders of the Jews, the false shepherds of Israel, and that the sheepfold or fold represents Judaism or Israel. And the ones who hear Christ's voice and respond to his call are those sheep of his own flock who are within Israel. And the man born blind is an example of someone who was one of the flock of Israel or the Judaism, and then he's been called out. And the other fold in verse 16 refers to the Gentiles. And God's going to make one flock from two different folds. Uh, He's going to call out the believers from the Jewish nation, and he's going to call out the believers from the Gentile nation, and he's going to make one flock with one shepherd, breaking down that division. So only those who have been drawn by the Father respond to Jesus' voice and come out of the first two folds, the Jews and the Gentiles. And only those who are saved can enter into this third fold. And where it says in verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and will find pasture. So now I've given you that background. Let's read it again and just picture this in your head. So most assuredly I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. Notice the shepherd, there's only one. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them, 
and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Yet they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Jesus used this illustration, but they did not understand the things which he spoke to them. Then Jesus said to them again, Most assuredly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal, to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees a wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. That's the uh, Jews and Gentiles. Therefore my Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. And then you got that division in the end there. So, chapter 9 finishes with a once blind mind's excommunication from the Jewish religious system. So, he was a Jew. But because he is identified with Jesus, they kicked him out. And that's what happened at the end of chapter 9. So Jesus comes along and he addresses this issue by speaking of a new fold, a new flock. And this man, this blind man who's been kicked out of the, the Jewish system, he kicked out of the synagogue, he's now part of Jesus' flock. So he's out of the old and he's into the new. And Shepherds and sheep are very, very common in the nation of Israel. Job had 14,000 sheep. (laughs) On the day the temple was dedicated, Solomon offered 120,000 sheep at one time. It's 1 Kings 8.63 when he was dedicating the temple. David and Moses, the two great leaders of Israel, were both shepherds. And Isaiah, Jeremiah, Amos and Zechariah, they all... Um, use analogies from sheep and shepherds to speak to the people. So Jesus is using something that's um, relevant and common and easy to understand for the people that he's talking to to understand and to relate to. So what did the shepherds wear and what equipment did they use? If you wonder about that, you probably know that the crook, the staff, there's more. So a shepherd of Jesus' day would wear a cotton tunic held together by a leather cord belt, so just a, a leather belt type thing. And he had a leather pouch on that belt to carry some food, dried fruit or something like that, and some small stones for his sling, which also hung off his belt. And the sling was used to get rid of predators, but also if a sheep was wandering off, they'd throw a stone with the sling and the rock would land right in front of the sheep, scare the sheep and the sheep would come back into the flock. So these guys are really good with their slings. That's why David was able to kill Goliath, because he had lots of practice. And 
Another item attached to the belt of the shepherd was a horn of oil, and oil was used to anoint the heads of the sheep in the flock, and it acted as an insect repellent. And also, it, someone has said that it reduces the friction that occurred when they buttered each other. So, <laughs> uh, I'm not sure about that, but it's interesting. I think the analogy was, you know, if the oil represents the Holy Spirit, then, you know, if we have the Spirit, then we don't butt up against the other so much. So, or it doesn't hurt so much. Now, another thing is they had this small club-like instrument called a rod, and that was used to fight predators in close hand-to-hand combat situations like a bear or a lion or a dog or whatever it might be who's trying to attack the sheep. And this rod, this small club, was also used to break the legs of the lambs if that lamb would persistently wander away from the flock. And so they'd break the legs put the lamb over his shoulders and walk around that lamb over his shoulders until the legs were all healed up and then the lamb would have learnt to bond with the shepherd and would never walk away again. And then they had the shepherd's crook which the shepherd would use to bring the sheep back into line, you know, reach out, get around the neck, pull it back into line if the sheep were going in the wrong direction. So that's the the Middle Eastern shepherd. Try and get that picture in your mind. All right, start at verse 1. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same is a thief and a robber. So certain times of the year, the shepherds take the sheep away from the village, taking the pasture, because obviously you can't have too many sheep in one area, they eat all the grass. But when they were in the village, and maybe at night they'd all come back, they would put their sheep into a common sheepfold. Now, I've read that theft from these communal sheepfolds was pretty common. I imagine it quite large, to put lots of sheep in. And so it was a two-man operation. A thief would climb up the shoulders of his friend, jump over, kill a few sheep, throw them back over, climb out, and off they'd go. A thief and the robber, yep. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. So... Jesus is the true legitimate shepherd who enters in the way that is proper and prepared. And we can think of that as Old Testament prophecies. He is the shepherd. He was predicted and he is righteous and he is there to bless the sheep and not to kill them. Now, a thief and a robber. So the Pharisees have shown that they are ungodly leaders of Israel by their excommunication of the man born blind. That he's found faith in God. And they're discouraging him in his walk with God. They avoided the proper entry to the kingdom of God, which was what? What's the proper entry into the kingdom of God? It is Jesus by faith. Okay? We walk by faith. Their other way is because the text says some other way, their other way is by works. Okay? So they are the, the thief and the robber. And the thief kind of represents someone who is sneaky and and deceitful, but a robber is someone who's violent. Now, in the Bible, the shepherd of the sheep is any leader, good or bad. So you've got good shepherds and you've got bad shepherds. And I'm just putting up Isaiah 56.11 on the screen for you. It says, Yes, they are greedy dogs which never have enough, and they are shepherds who cannot understand. They all look to their own way, everyone for his own gain. 
from his own territory. And that pretty much describes the Pharisees at the time, looking for their own gain, not understanding, greedy. They've had a lot of bad shepherds, the nation of Israel. Had some good ones too. Uh, Verse 3, to him the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice. So each shepherd would come back in the morning and they would call their own sheep out. So they're all mixed in together, all their sheep owned by different people, but the sheep which belonged to this shepherd would hear his distinctive call or song and they would respond to that shepherd. He calls his own sheep by name. This is the second part of verse 3. In Revelation 2.17, we're told that our great shepherd, Jesus Christ, will give us new names. That's pretty cool, eh? He's going to call us by name. We get a new name from him. And we'll possess that name for eternity. So he's going to name us. And he knows us by our names individually, which demonstrates a personal connection. So a personal relationship. And... uh Here's a a story to show you how good these sheep are at discerning their shepherd's voice. During World War I, some Turkish soldiers tried to steal a flock of sheep from a hillside near Jerusalem. The shepherd, who had been sleeping, awoke to find his flock being driven off. He couldn't recapture them by force, so he called out to his flock with his distinctive call. The sheep listened and returned to their rightful owner. (laughs) The soldiers couldn't stop the sheep from returning to their shepherd's voice. Pretty cool, eh? And if you've ever tried to catch sheep, they are very hard to catch when they start running. So for us, what's our application here? Are we experts at discerning our shepherd's voice? Do we run to him when he calls? The still, small voice of the Holy Spirit. Have we learnt to listen to him and follow him? Or do we need to have our legs broken so we bond with our shepherd as he carries us? The last part of verse 3, it says, And leads them out. So back in the Middle East, shepherds never drove the sheep, they never beat the sheep, they never pushed the sheep, they led the sheep. And it's the same today. You go over there, the shepherd's out in front, and the sheep are following behind. Over here, we we tend to push them, force them to go where they don't want to go. So Jesus, the good shepherd, doesn't drive me, he leads me. In other words, he goes first through the valley of the shadow of death, before he ever asked me to go through it. And when we do, he's there with us. For example, Jesus, our shepherd, our leader, was tempted in all points like we are, but without sin, Hebrews 4.15. And so there's no thing, there's no situation that we will ever face that he hasn't already faced. And he's walked through it with us. He leads by example. One of my favorite verses, which really um, helped me go through some tough times when I was um, younger, is Isaiah 63, verse 9. It says this, In all their affliction he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity he redeemed them, and he bore them and carried them all the days of old. So in all their affliction he was afflicted. The context is the children of Israel being in bondage and all that kind of thing. And their suffering in the wilderness, the hard times they went through, but in all their affliction, he was afflicted. He was with them. He was doing it with them. The Bible says, is God a God who is afar off, or is he a God who is near? Well, he's a God who is near to us. Verse 4, And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him. 
for they know his voice. Yet they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. So, when a stranger comes into the flock, the sheep scatter, and it causes division. He brings out his own sheep. So, Jesus is here speaking of his calling out his own sheep from the fold of Judaism. So, if you look at Romans 11, we're not going to go there today. We did this on Friday night, actually, for Bible study. If you look there, it talks about there being a remnant of the children of Israel, a remnant that God will save, because the majority of the Israelites today are not saved. But there's a remnant. There will always be a remnant. And so Jesus is calling out his own sheep from the majority, and just a small remnant who would believe. And in Romans 11, Paul says, look, I'm one of them. Look at me. You know, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm one of the Jews, and God saved me. Now, verse 6, Jesus used this illustration, but they did not understand the things which he spoke to them. Then Jesus said to them again. Now, you might want to just underline or circle that word again in your Bible, because sometimes we don't understand things. What does God do? Does he say, you dumb sheep, you didn't get it? I'll go and talk to somebody else. I'll try and teach someone else. I'll try and use somebody else. No, he doesn't do that. He doesn't write us off. He doesn't say, how can you miss his obvious picture? You know about sheep and shepherds. Come on. No, but what happens with us, practically? If we resist something that the Lord is trying to tell us, what happens? You know, it, it might come from here, but then you'll go home and you'll get a Bible verse from somewhere else, which will be on the same topic. And then you'll be listening to the radio and you'll get a similar thing. And God is repeating himself and repeating himself. And he'll keep doing it until you get it. And so the Lord is faithful to come time and time again and to help us to understand the things that need to be addressed in our lives. Verse 7, second part. Most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. So the I am, remember, is deity. Uh, Exodus 3.14, I am that I am. And some people might say, well, hang on a second. Is Jesus mixing metaphors? Is he getting mixed up? I thought he was a shepherd. But here he's talking about being the door. Is it a different analogy? No. Remember I was saying that especially the sheep folds in in the bush, they would have no gate on them. The shepherd would lie across. So the shepherd is the shepherd and he's also the door. No sheep could leave and no man could enter without stepping on the shepherd and waking him up. So Jesus is referring to himself as the door. I'm the shepherd on duty. I'm the one whose job it is to guard the flock. Jesus is the great shepherd. Jesus is looking after his flock, which is us. Verse 8, All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. Now, It also says back there, I am the door, not a door, not one of the doors, but I am the door and everyone else is a thief. And Jesus alone can make this claim. So you think of Buddha or Krishna or Confucius or any one of those guys. They all said that I'm a way, especially the Baha'i faith, they say all these guys were part of it, finding your, you know, destiny or whatever they say that you're going to find. But If Jesus is the door, how do we know it's true? Well, it's the resurrection. Jesus 
rose again. Well, Buddha kicked the bucket and he's still down. He didn't rise again. Muhammad, he's still down too. He didn't rise again. And Confucius, I haven't seen him for a long time either. So, you know, these guys, they're all dead. They promoted themselves until death came and terminated their so-called ministries. So only Jesus fulfilled his ministry by dying for our sins and rising again to verify, to validate and substantiate that his claim to be the door. We have to go through him to be saved, to be able to have eternal life. Uh, Verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. So, Jesus wants to bless us, but Satan wants to steal, kill, and destroy. Sometimes we forget this fact, because how Satan comes across is, he doesn't come across and says, hey, I want to kill you, I want to steal from you, I'm going to destroy you, and we just run instantly, right? But what does he do? He tantalizes us. He puts nice things in front of us, things that we would enjoy doing. But his goal, his purpose, his motive is to destroy us. Okay? So we know that we don't want to sin because we grieve the Holy Spirit when we sin, right? But tucked away in First Chronicles chapter 4, verse 10, we have the prayer of Jabez. He prayed, Lord, that you would keep me from evil so that it won't grieve me. Sin affects us, it causes us grief. It doesn't just affect God, it also affects us. So, people think that sin is fun. They think that drugs and alcohol and sleeping around is fun, but it's not. In the end is death. And that's the lie of the enemy that's the world has swallowed. I have come that they may have life, and they may have it more abundantly. Now, some people use this for evangelism. Come to Jesus, you can have abundant life. Get saved and you'll have peace, joy and love you've never known. And it's it's true. But if people respond to the gospel solely upon John 10.10, that come to Jesus so you can be blessed, have abundant life, what happens when they get fired from their job? Or they, you know get divorced or they, the boyfriend drops them or, or, or something happens, you know. They'd say, wait a minute. Jesus said, I would have abundant life. But look at me. And they become disillusioned and disorientated in their faith. So John 10.10 10 is the result of the gospel, but it's not the essence of the gospel. So verse 11 gives us the essence of the gospel. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. So the essence of the gospel is not what Jesus will do for you, it's what he's already done for you, okay? When he died for our sins. Because Jesus bore the wrath of God we deserved, our sins past, present and future are completely forgiven. Therefore, the gospel means we need to be about the business of not saying, get saved so you can buy a new car, or get saved so you won't have any more problems, or get saved so you can have a nice life and get off the drugs and whatever, but get saved because you have broken God's law, the Ten Commandments, and Jesus Christ died for your sins so you don't have to face the death penalty, the second death, eternity separated from God in the lake of fire. So let's say we do that, we understand we're breaking God's law, we we repent and we come to Christ and he lives in us 
but we still might not be experiencing the abundant life. Well, why not? Well, Micah 6.8, He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So mercy there is loving kindness. In the Old Testament, mercy is loving kindness. So if we're not walking humbly with our God, obediently, and exercising justice and love, loving others, and just doing what God wants us to do, being the type of person that God wants us to be, then we will not experience what God has for us. Which is why John 10.10 is so dangerous when you just use it in isolation, because people might make a true commitment, but they don't understand that becoming a Christian is about dying to self. If they never die to self, they never experience this joy, this peace, this love that God wants to give us. It's been given to us, but we won't experience it. So the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Now, in contrast, the bad shepherd thinks the flock exists for his benefit, but the good shepherd lives and dies for the good of the sheep. And I think of a martyr. I can't remember her name, but she was thrown to the lions, and along with a small group of Christians at the time, but the pastor of these people, the pastor of this small group of people, they were part of his church. He said, these are my flock. I want to be there with them. And so he joined them. He volunteered to go into the wherever it was, the Colosseum or whatever, and eaten by lions or bears or whatever it was. So it's an example of the dedication that the shepherd should have for his sheep. So the good shepherd sacrifices for the sheep. The good shepherd knows his sheep. And the good shepherd is known by the sheep. Now, the faithful pastor, this is from Guzik, I'm just going to read it. Uh, The faithful pastor will, as an under-shepherd, display the same characteristics as the good shepherd. He will sacrifice for the sheep, know the sheep, and be known by them. He will be a shepherd and not a hireling who does not care about the sheep. And the title pastor translates the same ancient Greek word used here for shepherd. It is a title that is only rightfully earned, not granted or assumed. So that's what a a true shepherd is. It's earned. That's what David Guzik said. I kind of like that. John 10, verse 12. But a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. So usually the shepherd is the owner of the sheep or the son, like you remember David, he was watching his dad's sheep. Jacob's son's watching their dad's sheep. And they would stick around because this is our family, um, family's possessions, and we need to protect them. But a hireling would, this is dangerous, my life's in danger here, I'm out, I'm going, this is going to cost me, I'm not getting paid enough for this, see you later. But in Amos 3.12, it says that if something, a lamb or a sheep in the flock was harmed while under the care of a hireling, the hireling would have to produce the ears or the legs of the lambs that were carried off as proof that he did everything in his power to fend off the attack. So in other words, you have to go and chase this thing that's taken the lamb and at least get those bits of it back. So the good shepherd tenaciously cares for his flock because he's not a hireling, he's the son. Verse 14. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and am known by my own. As the Father knows me, 
Even so, I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. So this other fold is the Gentile nation, as I was explaining before. So two folds, Israel, Gentiles, it's believers within Israel fold, and it's believers within the Gentiles, and Jesus is calling them both out. So one flock and one shepherd. Okay, verse 17. Therefore my Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. Now what does this mean? Why is Jesus saying this? What relevance is this? Well, I've got a story for you. Now, picture yourself back in 1925 and you need an appendectomy. It means they take your appendix out. So, back then, they um, would give you a general anesthetic. They'd put you completely under. But there was this doctor called Dr. Evans Keith, and he was a surgeon, and he'd been practicing medicine for 37 years. And he would do this operation of taking out the appendix. And But he said, look, it'd be much better, much safer, less complicated if we just use a local anesthesia instead of a, a general anesthetic. And the doctors agreed in theory, but no one would endorse this practice until it was actually performed successfully. You've got to prove that it works. All right? And so there's the problem, because no one was brave enough to volunteer for the procedure. Okay? But someone did volunteer, and that was the doctor. Dr. Keith. He volunteered himself. He lay down on the bed and... He laid down his body and he was the guinea pig that allowed the other doctors to take out his appendix while he was not under a general anesthetic but under a local. And now the doctor became the patient in order that the patients might trust their doctors. And so Jesus is doing this. He did much more than that. He didn't just take his appendix out or have that taken out. He laid down his life that we might find life. So Dr. Keith wanted us to be able to trust him that he would be able to take out their appendix safely with the local anesthetic. Jesus wants us to trust him. And if he's died for us, then there's nothing more that he can do to show us that he loves us so we can trust him. Now, another thing, as an Old Testament believer, if you wanted to enjoy fellowship with God, you would bring a lamb to the temple. There, the priests would inspect and scrutinize it for any spot or blemish. Now, what's good about that? You bring the lamb to the temple, and the priests inspect the lamb for any spot or blemish. What's good about that? Very good. Yeah, you don't have to check yourself. The lamb was inspected, not the worshiper. So if you go to the temple and you want to worship, you must bring a lamb, and the lamb was inspected. It had nothing to do with the worshipper. All right? God wants to bless us. He has blessed us. And the more obediently we walk with him, the more of that we will experience. But the blessing doesn't come because of our obedience. The blessing comes because of what Jesus has done already. So you heard the phrase, worthy is the lamb. 
So I can receive blessing not because I've gone to church, not because I've read 15 chapters of my Bible, not because I didn't watch television. Nothing to do with that. It's not about works. I only enjoy the blessing of God upon my life solely because of the Lamb. And again, all our obedience does is allow us to enjoy what He's already given us. So that's why we need to be willing to take up our cross and follow Him, because if we don't, then we won't be able to experience what God has already given us. And Jesus became the Lamb, you know, come down from heaven, became the Lamb, became like a human, so we could know Him, we could learn about Him, who He's like. Uh, Verse 18, I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it again. And because he laid down his life, Jesus became the door through which we enter his fold. In taking up his life again, by rising again, Jesus remains our good shepherd, guiding us, watching over us, and tending us his flock. So he laid it down, he made the way for us to go to heaven, and now he is the door to eternal life. And Jesus is claiming here in these two verses, 17 and 18, to have power over life and death. No one else makes that claim. No one else can make that claim. It's a claim of deity. And because he says that I may take it again, or I have the power to take it again, we can say that Jesus raised himself from the dead. So the Father raised Jesus from the dead, the Spirit raised Jesus from the dead, and Jesus raised Jesus from the dead. Now, There's a false doctrine I just briefly mentioned. It doesn't surprise us that Jehovah's Witnesses deny that Jesus could take his own life up again. But many others, like Kenneth Copeland, um, Kenneth Hagen, Fred Price, and a a few others, teach that Jesus was a helpless victim in hell, saved only by the intervention of God the Father. And that's not true. So even within the Christian church, it's happening. So 18, the last part, This command I have received from my Father. So, some people say, oh, Jesus laid down his life. Did he commit suicide? Well, no. Why not? Because this command I have received from my Father, Jesus was a voluntary death, but it's a voluntary death as he's obeying what the Father wants him to do. So it's nothing to do with suicide. Jesus is just living an obedient life to the Father. And he's willingly dying because he knows he's going to rise again for our salvation. 19, therefore there was a division among the Jews because of these things, and many of them said, he's a demon and he's mad, why do you listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who has a demon, can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Now, there's division. The Puritans rightly said that not all unity is holy, and not all division is from hell. Over and over again in John's Gospel, we see people divided because of Jesus. So. Why did they say he's demon-possessed and mad? Why do you think they said that about him? Well, he's claiming to be God. And anyone who claims to be God is either mad, lunatic, or he is God. So William Barclay was right when he wrote, either Jesus was a megalomaniac madman, or he was a son of God. So, what about Jesus? How can we look at his life? How do we know whether he was or wasn't? We don't believe he was a madman, but what evidence do we have? Well, the words of Jesus were not the words of a madman. Instead, Jesus demonstrated extreme sanity, extreme self-control. Also, the deeds of Jesus 
aren't the deeds of a megalomaniac. Instead, they were completely unselfish. Okay? And the effect of Jesus' words and actions brings change for good. And so, you're looking at Jesus' words, his miracles, and his life, we can say that Jesus was not a madman. Therefore, what he said had to be true. And these are not the words of one who has a demon. So notice the word words there. And then the next phrase is, can a demon open the eyes of the blind? So Jesus had two testimonies, the words that he spoke and the miracles that he did. And the two work together because if you just have the miracles, you might have false teaching going on with it. So you've got to be careful. And so these people were smart. These people were right in looking at both the words and the works of Jesus to make sure that he was the real deal, the Messiah. So to finish off, I just want to just focus in on the shepherd picture. It's found in many places in the Bible. I'm just going to touch on a few of the the places. It says in Psalm 100 verse 3, We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Isaiah said, He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Isaiah 40 verse 11. Mark wrote that Jesus had pity upon the crowds because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Mark 6.34 And before his crucifixion, Jesus referred to Isaiah's prophecy of the suffering servant, saying, You will all fall away, talking to his disciples. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Mark 14.27 And the author of Hebrews spoke of Jesus as the great shepherd, Hebrews 13.20, and Peter saw Jesus as the chief shepherd, to whom the under-shepherds are responsible, and that's 1 Peter 5.4. But I reckon the greatest reference to shepherds and sheep in the Bible is Psalm 23. So I thought we'd just finish off by reading Psalm 23 just to capture the heart of who God is and what he's done for us. And as you read it, notice the words lead and with me. Okay? So the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And notice it's my shepherd. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Remember the rod we talked about before? You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Father, thank you for this beautiful picture of you being the great shepherd, our shepherd, the, the shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep, the shepherd who's, there's nothing too hard, there's nothing too great, there's nothing you wouldn't do for us because you love us so much. And Lord, we just yeah pray that you help us to respond to you, that when you call, we will follow, and uh, we will live a life of humble obedience to you, loving mercy, walking justly, and walking humbly with our God. And we just pray that you'll, Touch us this week and help us to realize that this life is not about being a part of the world's fold, but about being in your fold, where your flock are following you as our shepherd.
We thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.